So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day, hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. Oh, hey, Michael. Hey, Taylor. What's going on? Oh, not too much. Uh, I heard that my, my friend on the other side of the line here became an uncle today. Is that true? That is right. My fiance's sister had her baby first thing this morning. So new member of the family. Very exciting. Member of the family. Happy day. We're covering VIF movies. So it's a, it's a happy day for us. We, we ended up watching a, a couple of uh, really delightful films this week, in my opinion. Uh, so yeah, I guess let's just kick it right off and get into first impressions of Netflix's Dick Johnson is Dead, huh? Let's do it. Just the idea that I might ever lose this man is too much to bear. He's my dad. Let's start walking. Just start walking to me. That's fantastic. I suggested we make a movie about him dying. <laughs> he said yes. She kills me multiple times. Action! The resurrected dad. Yeah, the resurrected dad. <laughs> <laughs> But now it's upon us, the beginning of his disappearance. The thing I hate most about my memory loss is that it hurts people's feelings. You know that you woke up in the middle of the night last night. You got fully dressed. Do you remember any of that? No. Yeah. What can we do about that? I don't know. Everybody has to sort of prepare because everybody dies. I love life too much for that. <laughs> <laughs> man, sweetie. Your father is a wreck. It's just inevitable and a part of who we all are. Yeah. The fact that he's willing to keep doing this. Right? He's doing it for you with love. He's doing it for me with love. Yeah, he'll do anything for me. Can you just like put one arm up against the wall? Like, yeah, that's nice. All right, Michael, that was the trailer for Kirsten Johnson's Dick Johnson is Dead. What do you think? I think we might be able to play a good drinking game where every time Dick dies, take a drink. That could be fun. I, uh, I think we would also potentially end up in the hospital. That is possible. <laughs> uh, I think this looks great. Former listeners would know that we adore Camera Person, Kirsten Johnson's last documentary. Uh, I think this looks like a cool kind of uh, companion piece in a way, since that one talked a little bit more about her relationship with her mom. And this will be a little more centered on her dad, who did make an appearance, I think, in camera person. Um, but, you know, tonally, this is so different. There's a little bit more whimsy. There's this kind of morbid humor to it. I think it looks really cool. What about you? Yeah, I agree with everything you said there, especially, you know, the it's one of the best documentaries camera person was. Um, I, I think that I'm a little bit more emotionally, um, 
hit by the trailer that I just watched, seeing him lose his memory and that, mm-hmm. that brief discussion about her asking these questions and um, that really deeply personal thing where he says, the thing that hurts me the most about my memory loss is that people think that, um, or, or that people get their feelings hurt by it. Mm-hmm. And that that's just so, um, you know, deeply specific and personal and uh, a really lovely observation from someone who is, is going through that. Um, I think I'm probably going to love that documentary. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like this kind of idea of uh, a, a proactive form of grieving in a way mm-hmm. and using cinema to do it. And it's a pretty cool idea. And, and to, to have it to remember him with when he's gone, mm-hmm. um, especially the moment where she tells him to move his arm a little bit so that he's more convincing dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Might invite tears and laughs, probably a little bit of both. Um, but our, our next uh, first impression is going to be on MLK FBI from director uh, Samuel Pollard, who also directed our first documentary that we'll be covering in a second here, Mr. Soul. So let's get on to MLK FBI. Free at last. After Dr. King gave his famous March on Washington speech, Wednesday, August 28, 1963, in a memo dated the 30th of August, no later than that, the second person in the FBI, may have been Sullivan, sends a urgent memo in which he says, after the March on Washington, it's clear that Martin Luther King Jr. is the most dangerous Negro in America. And we have to use every resource at our disposal to destroy him. All right, Michael, that was the trailer for MLK FBI. What do you think? Well, it is a little hard to go on. This is a shorter first impression than we normally do. This is only a mere kind of 60 seconds or so, but it looks like it's kind of going to be predominantly archival footage, which I usually kind of respond to. I do like that. Um, It's kind of a haunting 60 second clip to, you know, know that we're going to be kind of getting this perspective of MLK as uh, an enemy to be taken down. That is sort of a disturbing angle um, that we're going to, take up in this doc um i'm intrigued i don't know that i have that much more to say about it just given the shortness of this clip but um yeah i'm intrigued what about you yeah those are things that i i would echo as well um i not to jump the the on the horse too soon but in mr soul i think one of the best things about that film is the assembly and editing of the archival footage and so knowing that that some of the expertise on display there is going to be reflected here um, and with that specific thesis in mind of, of showing us how MLK was treated by the federal government um, and, uh, y- you know, just watching that unfold through this, this form is going to be very in- intriguing and probably upsetting. Most definitely. Um, so... Yeah, that's that's a brief reaction, but I think we can all agree that MLK being dead is um, not the best outcome. So we'll we'll wait to judge more until the documentary comes out. That's right. That one is playing at NYFF right now, but I don't know that I've seen a release date. But 
I think people could watch it at NYFF if they wanted to. Yeah, and hopefully there should be a trailer soon. The website says coming soon, so it should be on the way. Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. We recently joined as members, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. All right, let's get to a film co-directed by Samuel Pollard, director of MLK FBI, as well as Melissa Hazlett. This film is Mr. Soul. We know that Soul will be included in the television history of this decade when things go down. But because I hadn't seen enough images of myself, I watched. Should some unaware group of people take soul off, I won't see black people creating, searching, and acting instead of reacting. That program was so beyond its time that it was in time. And the moment that went on that television, it went boom, you know, we're back. I just had images of blacks all around the country saying, yes, yes, tell them yes. Black voices speaking to the problems of our time. This is serious business. Our lives were at stake. There exists, as far as I know, no TV program that deals with my culture so completely, so freely, and so beautifully. There is no alternative to soul. All right, Mr. Soul. This is a documentary about a television program from the late 60s and early 70s that I had never heard of before called Soul with an exclamation mark, which was uh, sort of created and hosted by a guy named Ellis Hayslip. Uh, had, had, you, had you ever heard of the show before, before watching this documentary? Not even once. Not right. even once. Absolutely. Okay. Um, how do you respond to this documentary? Do you feel like you got a good sense of what this show was all about and who this guy was, Mr. Ellis Hayslip? Yeah, I think that definitely, well, no, no, I don't think I got to know who he was, but I, I do think I got to know what he was about. And I think I got to know about the, the show um, in this time. And I think that the show itself never really elicited who Ellis was. And from all accounts, um, Ellis was shifty and not particularly one to be put into, uh, definitions. You know, mm. he, uh, th there's that moment in the, the film where someone was speaking with him. I think it was one of his producers or co-showrunners. And he says, you don't think I lie mm -hmm. directly yeah, yeah. <laughs> to him. Um, and I, I think that that's a, a great, um, He's a great legend. He's a great character. Um, I really enjoyed spending time with the the work that he did, and and I I would love to to have seen more of Soul. But I I don't think that this is a man who we will ever really get a grasp on. Yeah, I would agree. It strikes kind of an interesting balance between just giving us a look at the show itself and a little bit on who he was, some of his background, his childhood, his relationship with his dad, but it kind of just seems to accept, like you were saying, that maybe he was a little hard to crack in some way. So it's not going to go try too hard to do that. It's just going to give us a little bit of a sense of who he might have been, but more importantly, it's about his relationship to the show 
um, it's really not a biography. Um, I think something about the poster, the title itself, it seems like it might be that, but it's mm-hmm. more about the connection between the man and what he created. Um, and I think it's really fun to see this show and just the vast range of black talent that he elevated to the public sphere through this program. Um, it's um, yeah, interesting to watch a show like that with a host that is just so remarkably different from what we think of when we think of like late night hosts today. Um, you know, I think about some of those guys and how they ask their questions to a guest only because they're really kind of setting themselves up for a witty retort, you know, they really do. Or they kind rehearse. Of, totally, totally. Um, yeah, something about how this guy is really giving that platform over to these different artists and thinkers and really kind of letting himself um, step away and giving them the floor is really kind of um, humbling and inspiring. I, I agree. When I when I think about him personally, I don't think that he was a host. I don't think that he really ran a night show um, in, in that sense. I, I know that that's kind of the way that this is all presented, but I, I'm just struck it afterward feeling like he was a, a curator of art and the art that he was curating was not hundreds of years old or thousands of years old. It was contemporary. It was now it was here. And he was trying to, to find the, the raw of it. He was trying to, to touch the nerves of it with the artists and um, to, to share the things that he found beautiful with the world. And I think that's, why I like him and this project so much because there's not that me, me, me here in any sense other than him honestly wanting to engage with the art that's presented. Mm. Um, I, I, I don't know anyone else that I would point to that, that has done what he's doing here at, in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mentioned late night only as a point of comparison to try and illustrate the kind of personality he was in his role in this show not to try and group it in that it's obviously a very different kind sure. of format but I, I think that even the uh the film's marketing perhaps kind of does present it like that mm-hmm. um and i i think that while that's li- like that is how you potentially would have to classify him with the definitions we have i i'd feel more comfortable saying he was a television curator of art <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah i i for me, I'm not sure this is a documentary where the whole is that much greater than the sum of its parts. It does feel sort of like a collection of material, and I'm not sure how much more we get than just the summation of it. But it's a, a pretty entertaining watch, if for no other reason than to get such a diverse uh, range of, of artists in a really short period of time um you know that's sort of um just enjoyable and entertaining in its own right yeah i, I think you're right it, um and i think that, that might be true of the sum uh, of soul itself that it is the sum of its parts not it that is great um and that's that's maybe why i feel that curation aspect to it i'm i'm very interested in, in who ellis was and um how he he did what he did at such a a high meaningful level, but I'm not, um, 
super intrigued by the character, I'm more appreciative of the character. Um, and I, I don't think that there's anything wrong or, or negative with that, um, where I might in a different documentary, if the sum of its parts was better than the whole. But here it just, it, it feels right to know that one of the most meaningful things that I saw was um, him having uh, assisted a poet get an interview with James Baldwin in London and just watching the interview that he had merely gotten these two people together. That's all he had to do with it. But that was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen is James Baldwin in, interacting with this um, young poet. And um, there's just something uncanny ab about the, the beauty of that, that he just, um, he brought people together for love and experience and art. And um, I, I really like that part of it. Yeah, I don't remember which talking head it was that described him as a gardener, as someone who mm. is putting, planting the seeds, you know, carefully allowing them to grow, putting the right things together. Um, that seems like an apt metaphor. I liked that. I don't remember who said that. Um, I also liked a quote we get from him at one point where he's talking about not wanting to educate and not even entertain. It's more, it's, it's purely about sharing the black experience as, as he knows it and as he knows as great as he knows it can be, um, which is just, uh, you know, a perspective that I think you can kind of lose today. I think people can understand a, a show that doesn't seek to educate, but when you say you also aren't even trying to entertain necessarily, it's mm -hmm. just about the value of exposure and elevation of voices in and of itself that um, is pretty is kind of radical right like you think of the promotion of a lot of black artistry today sometimes it can feel like it's content put forth by various streaming services or, what, or whatever to entertain to grab us to sell us he's not mm -hmm. trying to sell us on anything he's trying to celebrate um that's really cool absolutely yeah i i would say that um i, I don't remember where i got this from but um it's basically that the film and in television and, and just art in general now is a uh, product. It's something you put mm. in a pipeline and um, you know, you're just trying to put more stuff in the pipeline to sell to more people. And mm. there was not an ounce of the pipeline production aspect of it to Ellis in any of these interactions. They were things that he had been moved by or questioned or, um, you know, interacted with that he wanted to follow up on. Um, and that, that shines through in a, in a really earnest and, and kind of um, moving way, I think. Yeah, it seems kind of impossible to imagine him when he was thinking about who to put on next, whether it was a dance, a poet. It's hard to imagine him thinking about the different kinds of content he would use. I, don't, I cannot imagine him ever using that word to describe mm -hmm. what it is that he is putting to the screen. It's culture. Um, and we, we, we use the word content so often these days. It's nice to think of a guy who would never have maybe had that word even in his vocabulary. Like these yeah, he was too people. analog for that. <laughs> yeah, totally. These were people. These were black artists. Um, this is culture. This is not uh, anything he's trying to sell us. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I entirely agree. Um, so w one of the things that I was most struck by that I wanted um, your feedback on, since you're normally a little bit more keen into this than me, is mm -hmm. when we're watching these um, these archival footage of the the project of Soul, 
were you enamored with some of the camera work as much as I was during like Stevie Wonder's performance or some of those dances? I was very curious about it at times. I mean, sometimes I was actually a little just unsure, to be honest, about what uh, was like the footage itself versus what the documentarian of Mr. Soul was doing. But I think it was maybe Stevie Wonder who had some effects going on at the same time. I'm not sure if that's the mm-hmm. kind of thing you're talking about. Yeah. But that was very striking. Um, and yeah, it, it was it, it was great. I loved it. Um, I, I what, thought what, that what, what as well as the, uh, the, the there's, um, there's a few dances in the camera choreography to the dancer and um, the timing of how they would pull back to a different camera and, and show these different, different angles with shadow and light. I just, I don't think I've ever seen television directing of that caliber in the sixties before. I, I, I guess maybe um, some anthology series might've had that going, but I mean, in a, in a public access late night format like that, which is what it was slotted into. I just can't think of anything else that was um, as artistic with the lens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. It's hard to just think about the scenes that particularly stood out to you, you know, Um, I'm remembering the musician who, towards the end of the set, just destroyed his folding chair. Yes. Love that. The, the, the <laughs> While sense, playing three uh, saxophones at the same yeah, time. <laughs> it was awesome. Uh, the sense that anything can happen on a show like that, I think is often missing from shows like this that are supposedly mm-hmm. live or reality television or whatever like that. They can often feel scripted, just as scripted as true scripted television. The or sense more that so this even. Is, yeah, 100%. You know, like- there's at least acting flourishes in, you know, written narrative content. Whereas sometimes when you're watching people not even behave correctly on like Jimmy Fallon or something, you're yeah. like, this is gross. Yeah. Yeah. Just the, the, the raw kind of energy of that was, was pretty great to see. I like that they truly seeded the floor for these artists to just do whatever they needed to do. And the audience became part of the show in a way that I don't mm. think any, show really has an audience be part of it in that way right now yeah. that I can think of. That was very, yeah. very moving. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, shows today wouldn't dare cut to an audience and show us that the applause maybe isn't as um, vigorous as the sound makes us think it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, this the show can thing. pretty confidently turn to the audience and show us how engaged and enthusiastic they are. Or dancing or um, enthralled or, um, y- you know, um, just collapsed with, with, with movement. Um, yeah. R- really, really cool. Um, do you have uh, anything else you want to go over here? Should we get to favorite scenes or favorite moments? What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, any favorite moments? Any any parts that really stood out to you? Yeah, well, I think we are honestly already talked about both of them. Um, and my my favorite scene itself would be the entire scene with James Baldwin dis- discussing um, art with that poet um, briefly, and then seeing the the cuts to their hands um, mm. and, and him talking with his hands. And then my my favorite um, moment would probably be the Stevie Wonder moment. Because, yep. man, that was just out of this world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mine's not quite as specific. I guess I'll just say that I 
really responded to a lot of the poetry just because it's something that there's really no great platform for today. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is just, just so kind of um, striking to see performed. It's something that just, I think does not, is not as visible in, in the way that it should be because it's so exciting to watch someone just deliver poetry so um, organically and forcefully. Some of that was really powerful stuff. Um, very cool stuff. It was. I agree. Um, all right. Well, that was Mr. Soul on to the uh, VIF documentary, Into the Storm. Los 14-15, los niños caminan en una filo de una navaja. Y esa es la edad en la que está Johnny ahorita, es la edad límite. Cuando yo me voy a dormir, lo que sueño es... saliendo campeón del mundo. He's really raw. That's really exciting in a surfer. He's hypnotizing. I think he has a chance, but he lives in a very chaotic environment. He's been ripping here. He's been training every day for his contest, and he doesn't show up. Deja esa nota cojuda que tienes, bro, de pandillero cuevón. No estoy seguro si mi futuro está clarísimo en el surfing. Quién sabe, hoy día de repente es un camino oscuro y... All right, Michael, we're talking about En la Tormenta, or Into the Storm. I like the Spanish pronunciation more because the torment really is centrifugal to understanding the boy here i agree and the word torment yeah that just sounds more appropriate whereas into the storm sounds more like a weather doc right uh-huh. uh, i like that title too we'll go with that um but yeah this is a documentary about a a boy over a period of some years who has a prospective surfing career and is um, coming up out of a burillo that is very poverty stricken. His, his mother's in kind of dire situation. His father's in jail. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a story about poverty and trying to overcome it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of the doc of, uh, about athletic achievement in a way. Um, it's a very accessible doc. I could imagine a wide range of people responding to this uh, in a very kind of um, natural way. I think this has some really easy entry points because it's such a poignant doc about, mm-hmm. you know, a kid's poverty informing his ability to perform in his sport and as he chases the stream of becoming a pro surfer um i did find it very poignant very very emotional and very empathetic and kind of tactfully um done i was kind of impressed by the span of time it covers and how it condenses that to a pretty 
digestible runtime. This is only this is under an hour and a half or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'll say I like this doc. Um, what about you? I do like this doc, but I, I think that um, some of the emotional through line for the narrative um, could, could definitely be um, improved on. There, the point about his father that and how important that becomes by the end of this documentary, I think it would have really paid off to start the documentary with um, some sort of an allusion to that, whether it's, you know... Um, because they shot this sequentially and maybe they didn't have the footage for that. Maybe it's just placing a phone call um, now on the other side of five years to the mother and asking her to explain why the father went to jail and when that Mm. was in uh, Yanni's life. And um, that would kind of set up for, you know, the, the coming, you know, resolution of his father coming out of prison but I, I think without that, the, the film does wander a little bit, um, which is like life. So I, I don't think it's, it's anything really poor here. I just think that um, it would really be a lot more engrossing if there were some, some more narrative structure to it um, as, as we move through. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. When the father does sort of finally arrive in Johnny's life toward the end of the doc, you didn't necessarily know that that exactly was the specific thing that was going to sort of unlock Johnny in a way that was going to sort of enable him to mm-hmm. get back in touch with this sport that was going to be the thing that lets him clear his head. Um, yeah, maybe a bit more anticipation or something like that would uh, would have helped. I could see that. Yeah, because he, he is, um, you know, this is a unique film in which, you know, the narrator tells us that we don't, like that they're having a hard time talking to Yanni because he will not tell them what's going on with him. Mm -hmm. And so I I think that, that if you have that kind of in the back of your head, that, that this is him trying to be the man of the house and that his father is in prison and, and that that's a little bit more hammered home um, then, then maybe a lot more of this stuff becomes more sticky and, and really, really moving, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a great point. One of the things I was kind of impressed by was the fact that this documentarian got himself in kind of a hard place by picking a subject who is um, so hard to get through to. Like, how is a documentarian supposed to get through to his subject when the people even closest to the kid can't get through to him? Uh, And even the kid can't get through to himself in one of the scenes where he's competing and he doesn't take a single wave. Yeah, yeah. And... So instead, the documentary kind of turns just to the people in his orbit, the coaches specifically, to sort of try and illuminate for us what they think is going on with him, which on paper would kind of worry me that like you're not digging deep enough into the subject. You're kind of you're turning to the people around him. But I actually think it kind of works because they I don't think people try to overanalyze. They just try to empathize. Um, if people were trying to say more than they really know about what's going on inside his head, you would feel like it was reaching. But I think there is something really poignant about the people saying we can't get through to him. And that's why this is so hard. Um, And the documentarian just kind of embracing that rather than trying to uncrack him or something like that. Um, Yeah. I I think that he, that the documentarian got really lucky in that both these coaches, I don't know either of their names, unfortunately, but the, the one who plays more of a father figure to him and then the, the very kind woman, um, that, that helps select him 
to this this program to begin with. They're very um, eloquent, but um, restrained, and they they're not pushy, and they they never say anything further than they should. They they don't share anything that's too personal about him. Um, either they strike that really fine line of being morally good while providing insight to someone who doesn't want to be seen. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And as someone who doesn't normally gravitate towards docs about athletes, that's just not my first impulse in selection of documentaries. Um, partly just because it, they're usually by definition of the sport, they're, they're kind of interested in the physical, you know, they, we get, the difficulty of training and potential injuries and that kind of thing. I, I feel like this is this benefits from the uniqueness of just being about his psychology and just the importance of an athlete being able to clear their head um, when they're doing their thing and how that's just sort of a benefit of where you come from. You know, if you come from a background that allows you to clear your head of the kinds of worries um, that some people have, whether it's just putting the food on the table for their family and that kind of thing, that, that is a huge benefit in all kinds of areas of life. And um, I think that's just a nice way that the stock differentiates itself is by sort of honing in on the psychology rather than the, the skill. He's got the skill to hack it clearly. Yeah, that, that's, that's very true. I think that, um, you know, you, you didn't say this and I, I'm sure there there's documentaries that I'm even thinking of right now that don't follow this, but a lot of sports documentaries are um, by nature self-gratifying. They are mm. showing how great someone is at something um, and it's, it's kind of ego propaganda almost. And there, there's a few that don't do this. I, I would say Diego Maradona uh, last mm. year did not do this. Um, I, I think that um, God, what is that? The art of perfection with John McEnroe, I think also did mm, not do yeah. that at all. Um, and I think that this do, does not do that. And that's a really fine line to not kind of become self um, ego type gratifying propaganda um, of how good you are at something and how hard you work, but rather um, it, because of the nature of Yanni's life, it, it's more look at this kid, try um, to do something that someone his age shouldn't really have to try to do, especially in the beginning. By the end, mm -hmm. you know, you want him to begin to take responsibility and the responsibility um, that he takes, you know, he's only able to do that because of these figures in his life and these opportunities he's been given over the time that we've seen him. It's um, as, as a piece of, of human life, it's very, very moving as a documentary. I, I think it has its flaws, but um regardless of that you know the the people and the way they behave are, are really um moving yeah 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 the, the docs you talk about that tend to inflate egos a little bit tend to sort of just talk about the gift right mm -hmm. that they were they just had something that the other kids didn't have and they doubled down on it and and they became one of the greats and like this is just feels a little more real to me in about in in uh showing that like half the battle is a little bit of luck and so and having the resources having the support right you know he, mm -hmm. he he performed uh well on the right day he had coaches who decided to invest in him and and show real concern for him um he clearly shot, has the it gift. didn't hit him in the lung 
Totally, right? It, it, yeah, went right through his back. It came out the other side. That's a that's, family that's decided to take him in when he most needed to be taken in in a different area. You, yeah. you know, just there's so much luck and perseverance in this kid, and he he was in such a hard situation. There's a few moments where he's talking, and I think he's like 15 or 16. It's fairly early on, and he's saying that he he's going to do what he's going to do to take care of his mom and to mm-hmm. help his cousin, and to be that age and have that much responsibility on you um it's really easy to see why he went through the struggles that he went through um and it's exciting to see you know how that pays off by the end where he places like fifth in the world or whatever that was yeah um, for for youths before he turned 19 which i think he's 19 right now um and i i believe that he's trying to come to america to to begin the next stage of his career um so I think there's like a GoFundMe that people can look up if they, they, uh, they watch this documentary and want to contribute to that at all. Oh, that's cool. Any other thoughts? I like this documentary. I think it's very accessible. I would recommend it to people. I think it's the kind of doc where if you read the description and it sounds interesting, you're probably going to like it. Yes. Yeah. I think it's not only a documentary that's like good for the surfing community, but I think it's a documentary that's good for, um, you know, people that, that are interested in people overcoming tough things. Um, cause, cause this kid's gone through more than, than most kids. This reminds me of midnight family. Like this is mm. brutal circumstances and just sheer hustle and, and will to get out of it. And, um, a little bit of gift, like when you're watching this kid carve those waves and, and do some of the, the spins that he does, you, it, it, he's got a gift for it. Um, but there's also a lot of other hard work that he put in. So I, I would highly recommend this. Um, if I had to, to pick a favorite scene, I, I think it would be some of the, um, the splash cinematography where, where water is actually hitting the camera at the same time that it's capturing some of the, uh, the, the movements that he's doing on his board. How about you? Yeah, I, w- I would have to second that. I think a lot of the cinematography is pretty great in just capturing him uh, on the water. And yeah, you know, it, what's there to complain about when you, when you're just watching someone who knows how to surf, surf. Yeah, exactly. All right. On to my Mexican pretzel. All right, Michael, we're talking about my Hispanic pretzel. We start trying to unpack that, just what exactly that means in the context of this film. Yeah, so uh, so pretzel is pretzel in German. I'll say that. And Mexican is obviously Mexican. Um, and so naturally, I don't know how to explain this movie. Um, I don't know that it is a movie. Um, yeah, I think we're done. Did we cover it all? <laughs> That's it. Yeah, this uh, is, you know, an interesting episode we're doing of the podcast because this is festival coverage. This is also a doc talk. However, at the end of the day, after watching this film, My Mexican Bretzel, I don't think I would even call it a documentary because of what it ultimately reveals itself to be. Um, Because, you know, this is a film that's blending fact and fiction in interesting ways. Um, The director's name is... Uh, Nuria Jimenez. Her directorial um, debut. That's right. Uh, it's essentially 
a found footage film. It's made up, I think, into almost entirely, I believe, of found footage that we uh, are, are, are suggested it was shot by a man named Leon uh, Barnett. Is that correct? Yes. Or is it Barrett? Sorry. That we assume was shot by a man named uh, Leon Barrett, who we see in this found footage along with a woman who we assume is named Vivian Barrett. And it's essentially a silent film where on top of this found footage, what's sort of guiding us through a story is diary uh, text from uh, the woman we see on screen, Vivian Barrett. Um, so it is suggested that the text we see on screen overlaid on top of this found footage is archival material, essentially, right? Um, I don't know how much more to talk about the form without uh, spoilers. Should we, we just go for it or what? We, we cannot talk about this film in any way without spoiling the entire film, which I think having it spoiled before you watch it is kind of essential to even watching it. To be I honest. agree. I think it's better, the better way to watch it. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I think that you might not even know what you're looking at otherwise. Um, so I, I, I will also say that there are um, crucial moments in the film um, that do have sound and mm. like 24 frames um, from Abbas Kiristami, when they come, they are um, incredible. They are, they are mm. deeply pulling moments in the film when those sound effects are moved um, to conjoin with the screen, um, whether it's steel chains or uh, an airplane uh, going at high velocity, potentially crashing. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's all very, very exciting. Um, yeah, this is, to me, a, a film that is, I mean, by accident, it is technically a film, but it, it almost feels more like a sculpture of... Um, of some sort where you're looking at human experience and your like the way that you look at it will not necessarily be the same as the way that you touch it with your skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's, you know, that's about as definitive as I can get on, on how I can even think about explaining my interaction with the movie. It's, it's so complex to, talk about these diary entries that are so deeply personal and and ruminatory and also based on, on sayings of a, of a false prophet Mm. um, as they, they are layered over what is ostensibly a very, very happy marriage, but the content of the diary is not Mm -hmm. um, this and just witnessing how, how text can alter the visual in that way, you know, it makes me think of the title of uh, that great Will Ferrell film, Stranger Than Fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was something that I just, I thought about that, that statement, um, which is such a great title for, for a film and, and how apt that was here because neither of these things are really fictional, but mm-hmm. together they make uh, a fiction that is in a superposition of being extremely real. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, so it's it's this fictional narrative imposed on found footage material, and yeah, I guess part of what was just so so striking to me about this this form and 
there there being no voice to accompany this text is partly just kind of this dissonance between the the joy the joyfulness of watching this couple vacation so luxuriously all over the world they're in ski resorts and boating on the ocean and they're in new york city this is all kind of in the middle of the 20th century and the text is so private it's so ruminative that there's this this kind of tension between image and the text that um really benefits from this kind of inherently ambiguous tone because that would change everything if there was tone of voice as you heard this mm-hmm. text um and there's this kind of like longing where you you just can't help but want to attach these words to a voice to this person you see on screen who has this facade of of happiness and pleasure and and leisure with these really thoughtful contemplative musings about all kinds of things Mm -hmm. um i've just never seen something like this that seems to be a real work of kind of contrast between um form and narrative i guess um it's really something I I completely agree in that I have absolutely never in my life seen anything like this. Um, the the only thing in like my contemporary like taking in of of art form is I'll, I'll say briefly the only other um, separate piece of of art that I've taken in and felt like was a sculpture after I was done with it. Like although this is a film. I feel like after watching it, it's best described to other people um, allegorically as a sculpture so that you can say that you're looking at something and then you're feeling something. And I think that um, there, there's another film called The Killing of, or not film, sorry, a uh, novel called The Killing of Commendatore from Haruki Murakami that is so deliberate and repetitive and mystical, but incredibly um, like based the, the way that it's written is, is just very, very factual, like just basic operations that a human does. And by the end of it, you, you kind of hold um, an oblong statue or something in your hands and you know all the ins and outs of it, but you don't really know what it is. And I, I think that this, like that, is, is one of those few pieces of art that um, transcends the medium that it's in to be best described through another medium. Yeah. I like that a lot. Um, This is a little bit of a pivot, um, but uh, maybe one of the things I worry a little bit about on behalf of this doc is that uh, a viewer might feel like they got the rug pulled out from under them, which I do not think is the intent. I think it is deliberately kind of plain with your expectations, but I don't think this is meant to be a wild surprise at the end. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that sparks any ideas in your head or not, but um, I worry a little bit about that with people's reactions to it. I think that there's the potential for that for people that are going in blind. Yeah. Um, and, and this is a film that I would not recommend going in blind to, um, which, you know, there, there's plenty of films that are bigger budget, more formulaically narrative that I think are always best to go in blind, but something like this, it, it, it is, it behooves one to, to have a clear understanding of some of the rails that you're going to be mm-hmm. writing on. Um, and you're, that's still not going to keep you prepared for the sound effect of the archival plane footage and him being deaf now 
and you wondering how he's like going and talking to these people in the cockpit while he's deaf. Um, But it it will give you an undergirding of um, being able to at least think about this um, in a way that doesn't um, scare you off of it. Right. Like if I didn't know what was happening, I'm confident that I would have been kind of pushing it away because I wouldn't know what, how to watch what I'm seeing. Um, and, and keeping up with the subtitles and then looking up and going, well, this doesn't make any sense. Like it, it really mm-hmm. is helpful to know that it kind of shouldn't make sense. And that, um, y- you know, that's totally separate from the Leo Leon, um, mm-hmm. Mallorca plot line and, um, them both getting sick and, and having their own health difficulties. And gosh, th- this is one of the most personal, um, on on personal i guess at some level as well films i i've ever seen it's just you know this is something you would want to share with someone when they ask like what can you do with the film art form and Mm -hmm. and this is like well uh, you should check out uh man with a movie camera 1929 russian Mm -hmm. film and you should check this out because what you can do with film and some words is pretty crazy and if you use sound it gets even wilder yeah yeah. Yeah. I kept sort of thinking about if there was any sort of logic or rule to when there was sound and when there wasn't. And I really came up with, with nothing except that it's more just about when, when it's right for the poetry of the thing mm-hmm. for, for something to come in, which I really like that it just felt a bit more mysterious um, and kind of unexpected whenever it did drop in. Um, I think that really worked. Um yeah, I, I would second everything you said. You mentioned that detail about Vivian's husband's name being Leon, her her lover being Leo. I think those those hints are pretty important to not making you feel like you get the rug pulled out from under you because mm-hmm. there is clearly something going on. There are coincidences. Mm-hmm. There's some weirdness in just the form of the thing that you're like, clearly there is something <laughs> bigger going on here. Uh, I think without that, it would be a little bit... Um, I don't know, frustrating or, or something, but I, I just have to think anyone is going to recognize that they are being toyed with a little bit and, and that's intentional. And that gives you a little bit of distance. I think that's really important to kind of reflect on what you're watching um, versus it just immersing you in it. Um, w- one of my favorite touches here creatively is the choice to use things that are false as mm-hmm. main plot points um, I believe it was called Dexadrin or Dexadine, um, which is the pharmaceutical company that um, Leon is representing after he has to leave the Air Force because he has um, become deafened um, in the 40s, I believe. Might have been the 50s. And Dexadrine was canceled in like 1968 because it was found to be a placebo. Mm-hmm. So there's one falsity. Um, there, there think were two others but the the main one that i remember is the the figure that she's quoting throughout this film um was actually found out to have been a plagiarizer of many other great gurus and um writers um with with statements and turns of phrase that he had collected that she's referencing so she's referencing someone as a teacher that's that's really provided her with great insight who themselves was not actually that 
and um, just the the levels and layers of falseness um, that create reality in real life. You know, there were people with dexedrine or dexedine that that were making money, and and it was false, and they were living a life based on it. It's just, um, it's such an interesting way of pulling back this curtain and showing a a tapestry on the ground and saying, "Look, see, um, you can't really." Um, take it with you but but you can see it yeah 100 percent. i think that is sort of the the brilliant of the thing is this kind of rhyming of the formal gambit the deception that's going on at a formal level with these details within the narrative totally with you um i thought a little bit too about just the fact that both vivian and leon are having affairs that's a kind of falsehood with each other in their marriage um yeah that there's something so satisfying about those those echoes um yeah, the placebo was, was a great touch because that comes right at the end. Uh-huh. Uh, that's very satisfying. Um, I, I think this is probably my favorite um, VIF title that we've covered so far um, and might be my, my number one or number two documentary on the year here now tied with Midnight Family. I don't really know which one I'm going to put first at the moment, but mm-hmm. um, th- this one was, was absolutely lovely. Um, how, how did you end up? feeling about it and where would you place it in your year way up there uh in the year for me as well towards the top no doubt i have to look at the other documentaries i've seen to kind of figure out the order but Mm -hmm. it's definitely up there as well um there's another documentary out this year called um bloody nose empty pockets which came to mind when i was watching this which is about a bar on its last day before closing and that documentary has this similar kind of uh, structural gimmick where this bar is not actually closing. Um, they have hired actors to just sort of play out this scenario as if a bar was closing. Um, and I think it was kind of inspired by something the directors heard about a bar somewhere closing. Um, and I, I you know, th- that's uh, another doc that is similarly sort of playing with um, the the truth and falseness of what you just seen. Um, I did not like that one quite as much. I, that is one where I did feel like there aren't maybe enough hints kind of dropped. Um, uh, so yeah, long way of saying, yes, this is also towards the top of uh, my list for the year. Um, all right. Do you have a favorite scene? Oh, geez. So many, so many. What we haven't said is just like how beautiful, beautiful. this documentary is. This footage is just so incredible it's in such incredible okay let me interrupt you holy crap dude there's this home video shot off the side of a boat of water cresting as the boat cuts into it just like feet away from it and it's i've never seen home video footage that looks this beautiful before oh my gosh (laughs) Uh, 100% one thing I read was that the footage itself was actually from the director's grandfather he shot the material and she just found it in a box somewhere in in their house or her house Um, yeah just just amazing that the the richness of the color the the shots he gets and they're in such incredible locations I mean some of those ski resort shots um, Vivian even says herself, it looked like a Bruegel painting, and she's totally right about that. It mm-hmm. looks incredible. Um, gosh, favorite shot is really freaking hard. One of the really 
kind of heartbreaking ones is where we see the house that they bought. I think they had recently bought and she talks about wanting to fill the house with children someday. And that's when she oh, talks man, about being, brutal. being infertile. She can't have kids. Um, but it's just absolutely Dry branches on a tree. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, you know, th- there's something about uh, you know, how clearly well off this couple is um, and how it, it still invites so much empathy for them, even though they're just having a great time mm-hmm. doing their thing, skiing and boating and, and everything. Um, you still feel so much for these very upper middle class people traveling the world. Um, so yeah, maybe that, maybe that scene, the, uh, the shots of the house and her not being able to fill it really, really hurt. Yeah. Um, well, before I say mine, I will make one more point, which I totally spaced on until just now. And that is there, there becomes a, a kind of motif in this film after the cameras introduced with her saying that he's not living life anymore. And I thought that was just so interesting. There's one point where she says, we saw a black pig on this Island. And then she says, well, actually I saw it. Leon Mm -hmm. filmed it. And um, this is also coming at a point in time where she's introspective about the fact that there's uh, a story about a man who lived on an Island that is very small and the man had never seen the ocean mm-hmm. and she was fascinated by that. And um, those, those two pieces, I, I don't know what to do with them, but they're so deeply intriguing and really moved me in, in a very deep way that, that really um, won me over uh, as the film went on. But uh, alas, my favorite scene is um, after we know that she is dying ostensibly, even though she's not in the footage. And she is uh, ostensibly in Majorca. And she is luxuriating in great royalty on a bed. Just just spread out like a Sofia Coppola dame. Mm-hmm. Just enjoying herself in this beautiful suite. Um, I really, really loved the juxtaposition of the prose to what I was looking at right there. That That mm-hmm. is my favorite. Yeah. Great stuff. Um, and that kind of ends VIF coverage for this week uh, with a Doc Talk episode included. You can catch Mr. Soul um, from, I think, about 50 different virtual screening theaters, one of which is SIF, if you want to support a theater local mm-hmm. to Michael and myself. Into the Storm, I think, is still going through distribution, and hopefully my Mexican pretzel will get acquired here soon and, and be widely available. Yeah, I think that's one. I'm uh, not it depends on when this episode of the podcast comes out, but I think that could be available to people through NYFF at the time it comes out. So they can oh, really? Which one? My Mexican pretzel. Oh, I great. think that plays maybe next week at NYFF. Fantastic. Yeah. We'll try to get this out here in the next couple of days. We just dropped the first VIF kickoff episode and um, geez, we're going to be back next week with uh, New York film festival coverage, right? As well as VIF coverage. So we, we've got a lot going on. All right, Michael. That's it. Till next time. Run! Go! Get to the chopper! We have to go. I'm coming with you. That was brilliant. You're the best and we love you! And that's another one in the can.